everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I'm joined by my producer, Joel. And today we're covering another serial killer. We'll be diving into the very disturbing life and crimes of Andre Chikatilo. Andre was a Ukrainian serial killer who was known as the Butcher of Rostov or the Red Ripper. This is going to be a very disturbing episode. So like I always say, use caution. This is for mature audiences for sure. Before I get into the episode though, I wanted to let everybody know that we went ahead and restocked our candle skull design. Uh, If you remember what that one is, I will put it up here on the screen if you're watching on YouTube, but we have restocked that design only uh, based on popular demand. A lot of people missed out and wasn't able to cop their basically it's our logo so it's the new lights out logo really really sick so we've got that in the t-shirt the long sleeve as well as that awesome faded hoodie which i really love all of our merch uses really high quality garments the hoodie especially super soft that's probably one of my favorite items that we dropped in our last collection yeah same here joel's wearing our ram skull design which was actually my favorite design oh yeah this one is so cool and that is the the crew neck that we have. I believe there are still a few sizes left in yeah, some of the other be. designs. Um, but yeah, we're quickly selling out of those as well. And we will not be restocking those. So if you didn't get an opportunity to check out the merch, it's malharmerch.com and you'll see the lights out. Album art there, you just click on that and you'll see the full collection there of what's left from our Halloween drop. But with that being said, let's go ahead and dive into our episode. This episode is brought to you by Aura Frames and Hellfresh. More on that later. But we're going to begin our story by talking about the early years of Andre Chikatilo. So Andre was born on October 16th, 1936, and he grew up in the village of Yabluchne, Ukraine, which was a republic of the Soviet Union at the time. Ukraine had been known as the breadbasket for the Soviet Union because it produced so much food, but things quickly changed by the time Andre was born. During this time, Joseph Stalin had caused a famine in an attempt to place peasant farms under state control, and this caused many people in the Ukraine to starve. What's crazy is that this man-made famine caused between 2 and 7 million people to die. Many were stripped of their land and forced to work for collective farms, and they were left with almost nothing. Along with growing up in a starving country, Andre may have suffered from hydrocephalus, or water in the brain before he was born. And this may have given him brain damage and affected the use of his genitals throughout his life. Andre was a small, skinny boy growing up, but he helped his parents as much as possible. As Andre's parents were farmers during the famine, they raised him in a one-room hut and cultivated the land behind it. And while people starved, many rumors of cannibalism spread throughout Ukraine. Andre's mother, Anna, traumatized Andre at an early age by telling him a terrifying story about his older brother, Stepan. She said that before he was born, the neighbors had become so desperate for food that they kidnapped his older brother, murdered, and ate him. It's unknown if his brother, Stepan, ever existed, but his mother's story showed how desperate people were during this time. Andre and his parents ate leaves and grass to survive the famine, and he hadn't eaten bread until he was 12 years old. He was raised in a time of poverty, blight, hunger, and war, and his mother never made it easier for him. During his childhood, his father adored Andre and his sister, but his mother was a bitter woman who constantly screamed at him. He shared one room with his mother and his sister, and he was a constant bedwetter. Every time he wet the bed, his mother would beat him mercilessly. On top of the famine and the beatings, Andre lived through German occupation in Soviet Russia during World War II, and his father was sent to fight for the Red Army. Through his childhood, Andre saw corpses on the side of the street and women being raped during Nazi occupation from 1941 to 1944. His father, Roman, eventually surrendered himself to the Germans and was held captive in concentration. And this didn't end well. Andre's neighbors saw his dad as weak because he had surrendered. They called him a coward, leaving a social mark on him and his family. And while his father was gone, his mother Anna became pregnant, and she gave birth to his sister, Tatiana, in 1943. 
Many suspected that Anna had been raped by a Nazi soldier when Tatiana was conceived, and some think the rape might have occurred in front of Andre, since the family lived in a one-room hut. Despite the trauma and the Nazi occupation, they tried to go on the best they could. In school, Andre was an excellent student and praised by his teachers, but he was painfully shy, skinny, and wore clothes made by his mother. By 1946, his belly was swollen from post-war famine. And because of his looks and shyness, he was constantly mocked and bullied at school. And then when he got home, his mother only bullied him more. As a distraction, he buried himself in schoolwork. He read a lot and studied at home because he often couldn't see the blackboard at school due to his bad vision. And his family didn't have the money to get him eyeglasses. But he kept studying as hard as he could. And teachers saw him as a role model. But everyone else saw him as worthless. By the age of 14, he was appointed as the editor of his school newspaper, and by 16, he was a chairman of the Pupils' Communist Party Committee. Throughout his school years, he became introverted and scared to talk to girls, and this made him jealous of schoolmates who dated. He began viewing sex as a shameful act at an early age, and he couldn't maintain an erection, which made him self-conscious. His first sexual experience was when he was 17. His younger sister had brought a friend home from school was only 11 years old. And while they were playing, Andre jumped on her and tackled her to the ground. And as the girl struggled to get free, Andre ejaculated in his pants. And this was the first time Andre realized he enjoyed watching girls struggle as he overpowered them. And throughout the rest of his school years, he kept to himself and never learned how to talk to girls. He had a crush in school, but never had the courage to go up and talk to her. He often complained of headaches and poor memory in his teenage years, and his social life was a mess. But he was the best student in town, and he became the only student from his collective farm to actually graduate from high school in 1954. Upon graduation, he applied to the University of Moscow with the hopes of studying law. He passed the entry exams with good scores, but the school rejected him. He blamed the rejection on his father's reputation, but the truth was that the other students had done better than him. And the school was really competitive. Instead of applying somewhere else, he moved to the city of Kursk. He worked as a laborer for three months, and in 1955, he enrolled in a vocational school to become a communications technician. This was also when he began his first serious relationship. The name of the woman is unknown, but what we do know is the relationship lasted a year and a half. On three separate occasions, they tried to have sex, but Andre couldn't sustain an erection, so they gave up. And in the end, she broke up with him, and this devastated Andre. After his vocational training, he moved to the Urals city of Nishni Tagil to work on a construction project. He also took engineering classes at Moscow Electrotechnical Institute of Communication. Only two years later, He ended up being drafted into the Soviet Army in 1957, and he served from 1957 to 1960. First, he was a border guard in Central Asia, and then they transferred him to a KGB communications unit in East Berlin. Just before the end of his service, he officially joined the Communist Party. In 1961, after his military service, he found a job as a communications engineer and moved to Rostov region in the USSR. He found a small apartment close to his work, and his younger sister, Tatiana, moved in with him after she finished high school. She lived with him for six months before marrying a man in town and moving into her in-law's house. While she lived with Andre, she didn't notice anything out of the ordinary besides his shyness towards women, and she wanted to help him find a wife and start a family. So she introduced him to her friend, Fyodosha Odnacheva. And in 1963, after only knowing each other for two weeks, they got married. Even though he liked Feodosia, he felt like his sister trapped him in an arranged marriage, and soon they were pressured to have children. During their marriage, Feodosia quickly learned about his erectile dysfunction. They barely had sex, and even when they did, he couldn't keep an erection. So they both agreed that they would conceive a child some other way. So what they did was Andre jerked himself off, ejaculated, and then pushed his semen inside his wife with his fingers. 
Their process eventually paid off, and in 1965 his wife gave birth to their daughter, Lyudmila, and four years later they had a son named Yuri. Now that he had a family to provide for, Andre decided to go back to school. He enrolled at Rostov University and studied Russian literature and philology. In 1970, he graduated with a degree in both. He then found a job managing regional sports, where he worked for one year before becoming a Russian language and literature teacher. As a teacher, he was smart and knew his subjects well, but he struggled to control the class. He didn't know how to discipline students, and they mocked him throughout the class just like his old classmates used to do. They never took him seriously and even threatened to beat him at times. They took advantage of his shyness and never saw him as an authority figure. Frustrated and angry, Andre began abusing his position as a teacher. In May of 1973, Andre got into the school's swimming pool and swam up to one of his 15-year-old students. He got uncomfortably close to her in the pool, and she backed up against the edge. He lashed onto her and grabbed her breasts and genitals. And as she struggled to get away, he ejaculated in the swimming pool. A few months later, he sexually assaulted another student after locking her in his classroom. The school board knew of his behavior, but they didn't do anything about it. Other teachers saw Andre fondling himself around his students, but he never got in trouble. So thinking he was unstoppable, he would then go into the girls' dorms and watch them undress. After countless complaints, the school director finally held a meeting with Andre and told him he should resign or else they would fire him. To keep things quiet, he chose to resign, and no one outside of the school knew about his behavior, not even his own family. By the next year, 1974, he quickly found another job as a teacher in the same town, and he worked there for four years but eventually lost his job because of staff cutbacks. But again, he found another teaching position in a small town to the north, and by March 1981, there were several complaints of child molestation against him and his career as a teacher finally came to an end. In September of 1978, Andre moved to Shakti, a coal mining city in southwestern USSR. On December 22nd of that year, he decided that molesting young girls wasn't enough. He needed more. So he finally decided to kill his first victim. His sexual urges grew by the day, and he couldn't hold them back anymore. So he lured a nine-year-old girl, Lena... Zakatnova to an old shed he had purchased in town, and after tearing off her clothes, he tried to rape her, but he couldn't maintain an erection. As she struggled to get away from him, he began choking her, and she squirmed on the ground before he took out a knife and stabbed her in the stomach. And as he plunged the knife into her stomach, blood was squirting from the wound, and she screamed. Andre stabbed her three more times in the stomach and from his excitement of the blood pouring from her wounds, he ejaculated on the young girl. And this was a critical moment when Andre connected his sexual gratification to violence and blood. And from then on, he knew he needed violence in order to reach a sexual climax. As he looked down at the young girl, he thought she was dead. But she twitched and tried to whisper a few final words which he couldn't hear under the blood gurgling from her mouth. He then strangled her until she was unconscious and dumped her body in the Grushevka River, where it was found two days later. Andre's violent spree almost ended after his first victim, as an eyewitness had seen him with the young girl at a bus stop before she disappeared. Police found drops of blood near Andre's property, and neighbors surrounding the property confirmed that they saw him on the night of December 22nd. But in the end, police arrested another man for the crime, a 25-year-old named Alexander Kravchenko. Alexander already had previous murder and rape charges against him, and the police thought they had found their guy. Under pressure, Alexander confessed to the murder, but later retracted the confession. And the only hard evidence police had against him were spots of blood on his wife's jumper that matched the victim's blood type. He was ultimately tried and convicted of murder in 1979, and the Supreme Court commuted his sentence to 15 years in December of 1980. But because of pressure from the victim's family, he was then retried, wrongly convicted again, and executed by firing squad in July of 1983. All the while, Andre 
got away with the murder. In 1981, Andre found a job as a supply clerk for a factory that made construction materials. He traveled across the Soviet Union to purchase materials, fulfilled production quotas, and negotiated supply contracts. This was the perfect job for him because he could search for more victims during his travels. On September 3rd, 1981, Andre walked out of the public library and Rostov City Center when he noticed a young girl standing alone at the bus stop. She was a 17-year-old boarding school student named Larissa Takayachenka. Andre began talking to her and offered her a place to relax and drink vodka with him. And he lured her to a forest near the Don River, which he knew was private. There were many trees, not many people around. He grabbed Larissa from behind and threw her on the ground, and she struggled to fight him off, but he jumped on top of her and tore her clothes off. He tried to rape her, but like before, he couldn't get an erection. As Larissa screamed at the top of her lungs, Andre took a handful of mud and leaves and pushed them inside of her mouth to get her to stop screaming. What he did next was truly horrifying. He then bit down on her nipple and tore it from her breast. He chewed on it for a bit before swallowing it. And since he didn't have his knife on him, he grabbed a nearby stick and stabbed her in the stomach. To finish her off, Andre took his hands and clenched her neck. And after slowly strangling her to death, he covered her body with leaves, branches, and newspapers. Larissa was discovered near the river on the following day. Mud and leaves were still crammed inside of her mouth. And throughout the next few months, Andre tried to suppress his urges. But his appetite had grown too much. Once he got the taste for killing, it was impossible to stop. On June 12, 1982, Andre took a bus into town to buy vegetables to bring home to his wife. And on his way into town, he had to switch buses in the village of Donskoy. But instead of taking another bus, he decided to walk the rest of the way. As he left the bus station, he saw a young 13-year-old girl named Layubav Biryuk. She was walking home from a shopping trip. Andre began making casual conversation and walked with her down the sidewalk. About a quarter mile down the road, the two became hidden by a row of bushes, and Andre knew this would be the best time to make his move. Andre pounced on the young girl from behind and dragged her into the bushes. He then tore off her dress, and as she began screaming, he plunged his knife into her stomach, and he continued stabbing her over and over and over again. And as he did this, he groped her and humped her like he was simulating sexual intercourse. He ended up stabbing and slashing her 22 times across her entire body, from her head to her neck to her chest and pelvis. He plunged his knife into her until he orgasmed. After this, he sliced her eyeballs open. A popular Russian superstition at the time was that an image of the murderer was imprinted on their victim's eyes forever. So Andre cut the eyeballs hoping he would destroy his image. Then he hid the body in the underbrush. Her body was found nearly two weeks later on June 27th. After killing Layubov, Andre saw how easy it was to pick up strangers at the bus station. People often walked to the bus station and from the bus station to home alone. So he began targeting children and runaways at local bus and train stations. He practiced talking to children and earning their trust. He offered to show them shortcuts back to their house or he promised to show them rare stamps or give them candy if they followed him. As for the adult victims, they were often prostitutes or homeless people that wandered between towns. He would often lure them with alcohol or money and lead them to hidden areas where no one was around. By the end of 1982, his urges had escalated and his methods had become more extreme because on December 11th, he met a 10-year-old girl named Olga Stalmchenko and she was taking a bus back to her parents' home. He lured her into a cornfield at the edge of town where he tackled her to the ground. He then groped her while he pulled out his knife and stabbed her over 50 times across her entire body until she was dead. After he orgasmed, he gouged the girl's eyes out, but in his excitement, he didn't stop there. He then decided to cut open her stomach, and he reached inside and pulled out her bowels and her uterus. And then he just left her body in the cornfield where the vultures found her remains. And sadly, the police wouldn't find her for nearly two months. After the first four victims, the local police finally began to catch on. And by January 1983, they suspected the murders were by the same killer. 
They put together a police team with Major Mikhail Fedosov at the head, and he assigned a specialist forensic analyst, Viktor Burakov, to lead the investigation in the Shakti area. They called it Operation Forest Path, since that's where he left most of the bodies. But police also named it the Case of Fools, since the murders were so messy and gruesome. They thought the killer was a person of special needs. But the only thing they knew for sure was that they had a serial killer on their hands. After finding the last victim and seeing that her eyes were gouged out like the others, they knew it had to be the same killer. But they failed to ever inform the public. The concept of a serial killer was still mostly unknown in the Soviet Union, mostly because of cultural differences from the West, or because the communist state wanted to suppress the idea. The Soviet police and the communist-controlled media didn't want to alarm anyone, and they didn't want the bad publicity of having a deranged murderer on the loose, so they just kept it quiet. And since the people didn't know what was going on, rumors began to spread through Rostov. They thought the murders were a work of foreign spies or even a werewolf. And despite the Soviet government trying to keep everyone calm, superstitions grew, and Andre kept up his murder spree. By September of 1983, Andre had killed six more people, many of them young girls, and they had all been killed the same way as the others, stabbed and slashed multiple times with a knife, and their eyes were gouged out. Many times he would disembowel his victims, which made police think it might be a group of people harvesting organs or even sacrificing the victims for a cult. They thought the killer had to be mentally ill, a homosexual or a pedophile. So investigators began searching through psychiatric wards for lists of people's names. They also collected the names of registered sex offenders in the area, hoping to find someone who didn't have a solid alibi. But as the pressure to catch the killer intensified, they began getting false confessions. By the end of the year, several intellectually disabled men admitted to the murders. Many confessed after long and intense interrogations. Three men even killed themselves after the aggressive interrogations. Even after they had suspects in custody, the murders continued, and some of the murders were difficult to connect to their killer. On October 30th, they found the body of a dead 19-year-old prostitute named Vera Shevkin. Vera's body was mutilated like the others, but her eyes were still intact. Sometimes investigators couldn't tell if the serial killer was inconsistent or if the victims were connected to an entirely separate murder. But luckily some good came out of their investigations. Throughout their manhunt, investigators ended up solving over a thousand unrelated crimes, and this included 95 murders, 140 assaults, and 245 rapes. But after all of their efforts, they still couldn't stop Andre, because on December 27th, he struck again. This time, he met a 14-year-old boy named Sergei Markov at a local train station. He lured the boy away from the train station, found a secluded area, and added one more victim to his list. He ended up stabbing the boy over 70 times and sawed off his genitals with his knife. Although he previously killed women and young girls most of the time, Andre's taste of victims was changing, and he was willing to kill anyone that he could get his hands on. Wow, after that I need to take a break, and we'll be right back. So by 1984... Andre's killing spree was in full swing, and local police barely made any progress on the case. More bodies were stacking up, and by the end of March, he had killed two more women and a 10-year-old boy. Luckily, though, Andre was leaving evidence behind. A handful of witnesses had given a detailed description of a man last seen with the young boys. Samples of identical gray hair were found, and Andre had also left behind a footprint at the crime scene not to mention the semen and saliva samples they had gathered from the other scenes. But still, Andre couldn't be stopped. In 1984, he had killed, mutilated, and disemboweled 15 victims. And like his previous victims, he gouged their eyes out. He often hacked off the genitals of his male victims or pulled out the uterus of his female victims. And police rarely found these body parts at the crime scenes. With the long list of murders growing by the day, police eventually increased their efforts. They began monitoring local bus and train stations since they finally understood Andre found many of his victims at local transportation stations. Alongside the murders, Andre's boss accused him of stealing two rolls of linoleum. He was fired during the summer of 1984 and his boss had filed a police report for the theft back in February. 
In August, Andre quickly found another position as a supply clerk, and he went right back to his usual routine. On September 13, 1984, two undercover detectives roamed around the Rostov bus station. They kept their eyes on everyone who walked in and out of the building, and they disguised themselves as everyday passengers, waiting in the bus station lobby. They walked around and sat at different benches as they scoped out the scene, and they eventually noticed Andre trying to start conversations with random women. They also noticed he had some gray hair like the strands found at the crime scenes, so they followed Andre on foot. He wandered through town and they watched him try to approach random women. They also caught him fondling himself in random public places. And when he reached the city central market, they arrested him and took him to the police station. And when they searched him, they found a knife with an 8-inch blade, bundles of rope, and a jar of Vaseline. He was also suspected of robbing one of his previous employers, so they were able to hold him for longer than usual. And as they checked their notes, they saw that Andre matched the description of a witness who had seen him with his last victim. So they drew his blood to try and match him to the six semen samples they had collected. Unfortunately, Andre's blood type came back as type A, while the semen samples were type AB. The investigators didn't know that Andre had an extremely rare genetic condition. He was a non-secretor, where his blood and saliva samples were type A, but his semen was type AB. And investigators didn't have modern-day DNA tests, so they never made the connection. But they still added Andre's name to the list of suspects. But since his blood type didn't match the samples, he wasn't a top priority. The only thing they charged him with was theft, and he was sentenced to one year in prison, while also being expelled from the Communist Party. But after only serving three months, he was released on December 12, 1984. And after coming close to being caught, Andre kept a low profile for almost eight months. He found a new job as a traveling buyer for a train company, and he tried to spend his time doing other things. But in the back of his mind, he constantly thought about killing again. He suppressed his urges for as long as he could, but soon he needed to murder. Knowing there was a manhunt for him in Rostov, he waited until he was out of town to make his next move. On August 1st, 1985, he finally got another chance. He was on a business trip in Moscow waiting at a train station when he came across an 18-year-old woman named Natalia Poklistava. He quickly set his plan in motion, and he lured Natalia out to a nearby thicket of woods. And after making sure the coast was clear, he lunged at Natalia from behind and brought her to the ground. She screamed for help, but no one was around to hear her. And she struggled to get out of his grasp, but he was too strong. Even though Andre was a pretty weak guy, he made sure to choose victims he could overpower. He then bound her with ropes until she was completely helpless. From his belt, he pulled out his 8-inch blade. Gripping the handle tight, he drove the blade through her ribcage as blood poured out onto the ground. And like always, he kept stabbing until he ejaculated. He ended up stabbing Natalia 38 times in the chest and neck. And when he let go of the knife, he took his hands, wrapped them around her neck, and strangled her to death. Following his old routine, he gouged her eyes out before leaving her body to rot. Then he caught a train back to Rostov. And when police found Natalia's body, it had all the signs of the killer from Rostov. But this was the farthest from Rostov that they'd ever found one of his victims. They checked flight records from Rostov to Moscow but found nothing, because Andre had taken a train. And when police went to check the train records, they found out that the train system didn't keep passenger records, so they had no lead. Without stopping, Andre killed another woman later that month, putting even more pressure on the police. His next victim was a young woman named Irina Gulyeva. Andre made sure to stay clear of Rostov again, so he killed her in Shakti, which is 47 miles northeast of Rostov. Police became frustrated at their lack of leads, so they ramped up their investigations again. Maybe this time we'll catch him. In November 1985, Special Agent Isa Kostoyev became the new supervisor for the investigation. He built a team to work exclusively on the serial killer case. He hired 15 agents and 29 detectives, and they went back and looked at all the previous cases tied to the serial killer. And for the first time in Soviet Union history, they reached out to a psychiatrist hoping to build a psychological profile for the serial killer. Dr. Alexander Bukhanovsky returned with a 65-page profile on the killer, and he described Andre as a necrosadist, or someone who gets sexual gratification from the suffering and death of others. 
also placed his age somewhere between 45 and 50, which was accurate since Andre was roughly 50 years old. The report also said that he probably had a rough and isolated childhood, and he was incapable of flirting with women. He was most likely married and had kids, but the only way he could orgasm was through violence. And there was one last major thing the report had pinned down. It suggested the killer often traveled for work, since the killings often happened on weekdays near transportation stations. The psychological profile was extremely accurate, and it finally seemed like the investigation was getting somewhere. But Andre followed the investigation closely. He read the newspapers, and the Soviet government finally allowed the media to talk openly about the manhunt. So Andre decided to lay low for a bit, and he tried his best to suppress his urges, because if he kept killing at the same rate, he knew he would get caught. Over the next several years, police found the bodies of several murder victims, but they weren't sure if it was the work of the same killer. Some were found stabbed but not mutilated. Others were found buried, which made them think there could be more victims out there, but they couldn't find them. It was tough to link these murders to their killer, and by the fall of 1986, they thought their killer might have moved, been imprisoned for other crimes, or died. Since Andre had been following the investigation, he knew where the police were looking, so he avoided Rostov completely and laid low for a long time. But then in 1988, he murdered again. He met a woman on a train in Krasny Sulin. He lured her away from the train station and into the nearby woods where he tied her hands behind her back and shoved dirt into her mouth. He took his knife and sawed the nose off of her face before slashing her several times across the neck. He then picked up a nearby slab of concrete, brought it over to her body, and threw it down as hard as he could. When investigators found the body on April 6th, they noticed the knife wounds matched the ones linked to the manhunt from years before. But still, she wasn't disemboweled and her eyes weren't gouged out. She was also crushed by a cement slab, which didn't follow Andre's routine so they still weren't 100% sure if the killer was the same one they had been looking for, and they were never able to identify the woman. It wasn't until May 1988, when they knew their killer had officially returned. They discovered the body of a nine-year-old boy, Alexei Voronko, near a train station in Ukraine. He was mutilated and his genitals had been cut off. Investigators had no doubt that their killer was active again. So the manhunt began, all over. From here on out, Andre was back to an all-out killing spree. He even had the confidence to kill in Rostov again. He stacked his kill count up to 40 victims in 10 years, and he made the police investigators look like fools. Even with a dedicated team of special agents, they couldn't stop him. So over the next two and a half years, Andre didn't control his urges at all. Whenever he had the urge to kill, he didn't hold back. Month after month, he killed, one after the other. He chose targets he could easily overpower. Then he would ravage them, pull out their innards, slice apart their genitals, and leave the bodies for the police to find. On March 8, 1989, Andre's adult daughter had recently moved out of an apartment, but her rent lasted until the end of the month, so Andre knew he had a quiet place to kill. He found a 16-year-old girl, Tatiana Risova, who had recently run away from home. He struck up a conversation and lured her back to his daughter's empty apartment. After stabbing her to death and ejaculating, he hacked her body into several pieces and dumped her remains in the local sewer. When investigators found the body parts, they didn't connect the murder to their manhunt, since he hadn't gotten rid of a body like that before. But Andre wasn't sticking to his old plans. Even though he wasn't always killing people the same way, he would change up his routine to throw off investigators. Going forward, many of his victims were young boys under the age of 16. He mostly hung out around train stations to find his next target, but he also discovered a new hunting ground, the movie theater. He realized that this was a popular spot for young boys, so he would check to see the showtimes for popular movies, then wander around the lobby until someone caught his eye. He knew boys between the ages of 8 and 11 were easily persuaded and impressed by simple things so he knew exactly how to lure them into his trap. On January 14, 1990, Andre saw an 11-year-old boy named Andre Kravchenka standing outside the Shakti movie theater. Andre approached the boy and struck up a conversation about movies. He told him he had a collection of imported Western movies, and during that time in the Soviet Union, movies from the Western world were rare to come by. 
so he told the boy that he could show him his movie collection if he followed him. Andre lured the boy out into the dark woods where he stabbed him multiple times and severed his testicles, and the boy wasn't found until a month later. By March 11th of that year, the investigation was going so poorly that the leaders held a meeting. Andre had killed around 47 victims by now, and tensions were high. The public, the press, and even the Ministry of the Interior had put so much pressure on the investigation that something had to be done, and done quickly. The team leader, Major Mikhail Fedesov, threatened to fire his team members if they couldn't make progress. So again, they ramped up the investigations, but still, Andre kept killing. By August of 1990, he had killed three more people by luring them from train stations and mutilating them in the nearby woods. One of them, a 13-year-old boy named Viktor Petrov, was killed disfigured and left in the Rostov Botanical Gardens, surrounded by running rivers and blooming flowers. With more victims constantly showing up, investigators finally put a solid plan into place. Viktor Burakov was an investigator who had been part of the manhunt since 1982, and he set up a trap to finally stop the killer once and for all. Since they knew a lot of victims were from local train and bus stations, Victor had an idea to put uniformed officers at the larger stations and keep undercover officers at the smaller stations. This way the killer would avoid the uniformed officers and most likely use the smaller stations to lure his victims. The officers were also instructed to question any adult man that was with young women or children, and they were also told to get their name and passport number. And the plan was quickly approved and set into motion. 360 officers were planted across Rostov's transportation stations. Undercover officers were set up at the three smallest ones, and the operation officially started on October 27, 1990. Only three days later, another body was found at Don Leskos Station, and this was one of the stations undercover police were watching. The victim was a 16-year-old boy named Vadim Gromov. His wounds matched the other victims. He was strangled, stabbed 27 times, and the tip of his tongue was missing. His left eye was gouged out and his genitals were sawed off. But the police later found out that the victim had been killed 10 days before their new operation started. And by then, Andre had already found a new victim when the last body was found. He lured another 16-year-old boy from Kurpiknaya, which was another one of the stations the undercover police were supposed to be watching. His name was Viktor Tyshenko, and he was one of the few to put up a fight against Andre. While the other victims barely left a scratch on Andre, Victor almost escaped. As Andre wrestled the boy to the ground, Victor clenched his teeth down onto one of Andre's fingers. He bit down as hard as he could and snapped his finger in half. Victor had bitten down so hard that when he pulled his hand away, he tore off Andre's fingernail. Blood squirted from his finger and Andre screamed in agony, but he wasn't going to let Victor get away with it. At that point, he became enraged, grabbed his knife and stabbed him 40 times until dead. This time, he didn't bother to hide the body, and investigators found Victor near the station on November 3rd. Three days later, Andre was ready to kill again. He saw no end in sight, and police had completely missed him during the last murder. So on November 6, 1990, Andre found another victim, a 22-year-old woman named Savetla Korostik, at the same station he had found Vadim. He followed his standard routine and lured the woman to the forest near the station, but he didn't know he was being watched by an undercover officer, Igor Rybakov. After Andre killed and mutilated the young woman, the officer watched Andre leave the woods. It wasn't that strange for people to go in the woods during early November because people loved to gather wild mushrooms, but he kept his eye on Andre. He then watched him go up to a well and get some water to wash his hands and face. And when he came back toward the station, the officer noticed Andre had a smear of red blood on his cheek and one of his fingers was wounded. So the officer went up to Andre and asked for his papers. He wrote down his name and info, but he had no reason to arrest him, so he let him go. The officer filed a report on what he saw and then went home. A week later, the victim's body was found, and after police checked the reports from November 6th, they saw Igor's report. Some investigators recognized Andre's name since he was arrested in 1984. So yet again, they looked into it. They saw his work history and knew that he had traveled to some of the cities where murders had taken place. And when they asked his old co-workers about him, when he used to be a teacher, they told investigators about the sexual assaults and how he was forced to resign. Things finally began to add up, and on November 14th, undercover police began following him, and over the next few days, they watched him start talking to young women and children who were alone. 
but he failed at luring any of them into the woods. On November 20th, Andre was seen walking around the city with a big jar of beer. As he stumbled around town, he tried to talk to a few kids, but they all ran away. When he walked into a cafe, police decided to make their move. The undercover police went up to the front door and waited for him to exit the cafe. And as soon as he walked outside, they quickly arrested him. Looking confused, Andre told the police that they had made a mistake. He also complained about how they had already arrested him for the murders in 1984, but they cleared him. Upon searching his body, they found a knife and two bundles of rope. They also noticed that his finger was broken and mangled, and the wound went deep into his finger, and he had tried to treat it with iodine. After taking a blood sample, they threw him in a cell at the KGB headquarters in Rostov. He had a cellmate with him who sat on his bunk. The man looked like a regular guy, but was actually a police informer who tried to get any information from him. They desperately needed a confession, and under Soviet law, they could only hold him for 10 days. But as the police informer tried to get Andre to talk about his crimes, he wouldn't say anything. Isa Kostelyev interrogated Andre the next day, but he quickly became defensive and denied the murders. The only thing he would admit to was his sexual assault on former students. When Andre returned to his cell, he told the police informer how aggressive the interrogator was. He asked him specific questions about the mutilations, which made Andre not want to answer anything. This time, they matched the sample to the suspect's blood instead of the semen, and the results were a type A match. But even after this, Andre still wouldn't confess. Days passed, and on November 29, 1990, which was the last day they were able to hold Andre, investigators brought in their last-ditch effort. Dr. Alexander Bukhanovsky agreed to help in the interrogation. He was a psychiatrist who put together the 65-page psychological profile on Andre. And when he walked into the interrogation room, the only thing he carried was his 65-page report. All he did was sit down across from Andre and read through bits and pieces of the report. And after two hours of listening to the doctor pinpoint every part of his personality and behavior, Andre burst into tears. He immediately confessed to the doctor about everything. He was amazed that someone he had never met understood him so well. They ended up talking late into the evening, and eventually, Andre said he was ready to make a formal confession to the police. So that night, police formally accused Andre of murder, and by the next morning, he made his confession. Police had pinned 36 murders on him, but he only confessed to 34. The other two were victims with similar wounds, but Andre specifically denied those two. He gave the police descriptive details for each of his murders. He would show investigators how he murdered the victims, what he did to their bodies, and where he left them. He even acted out his killings with life-size human models, showing them where he stabbed his victims. And he drew out crime scenes from memory. He also gave them exact details on how deep he would stab his victims, so he could keep them alive as he cut them over and over before he ejaculated. Investigators asked him about why he had cut out the eyes of his earlier victims, but only slashed the eyes of his later ones. He told them he believed in the old superstition that the image of a murderer imprints itself on the eyes, but he thought it was probably just an old wives' tale as time went on. When investigators asked how he would return home without blood on him, he told them he had learned to dodge the spurts of blood over time. He knew where to stab and how to stab his victims so the blood traveled in a certain direction. He confessed that the cries and agony of his victims, along with the flow of their blood, gave him relaxation and pleasure. He even admitted to tasting the blood of his victims, and he would bite down and tear at their lips, nipples, tongues, and genitals. Andre would even sometimes chew on the testicles or the uterus, and other times he would eat the nipples and tongues. When they asked him if he kept any of the body parts, he said no. He told them he tossed them away but police didn't know if he was lying because the genitals were usually missing from the crime scenes. After Andre's disturbing confessions, the police officially charged him with the 34 murders he had confessed to. And over the next few days, he confessed to an additional 22 murders the police didn't even know about. He also showed them the location of three of the bodies that they had missed. Of the 56 total victims he had confessed to, three of them couldn't be found or identified. So by the end of his confessions, he was charged with a total of 53 murders. They held him at the KGB station in Rostov until his trial. It took them almost nine months to go through every single case and confirm that Andre had killed every person. 
After they built the entire case against him, they sent him to Serbsky Institute in Moscow for a psych evaluation. The senior psychiatrist Andrei Tachenko took it from there. In his notes, he talked about Andrei's physical problems from childbirth. The hydrocephalus, or the water in the brain, that gave him brain damage and caused a lot of problems with his genitals. This is most likely what made him wet the bed when he was younger, and it probably contributed to him not being able to keep an erection. This along with growing up under Nazi occupation, his mother's rape, the constant bullying and other hardships led Andre down a dark path. Although Andre had severe psychological issues, including borderline personality disorder and sadistic features, the psychiatrist said he was sane enough for trial, and therefore his trial began on April 14, 1992. He was charged with 53 counts of murder and 5 counts of sexual assault against minors when he was a teacher. During the whole trial, he was kept inside an iron cage in the corner of the courtroom. He could sit or stand in the cage, but other than that, he couldn't go anywhere. They wanted to keep him away from victims' family members, not only for their safety, but his own. The judge, Leonid Akubzinov, sat on the platform between two jurors, and the rest of the court seated 250 people. Most of it was completely filled during the proceedings. Early into the trial, the press had given Andre a few nicknames like the Maniac or Cannibal. He would later get the nicknames Butcher of Rostov, the Red Ripper, and the Rostov Ripper. The public had already seen him as guilty long before the end of the trial, and he would sit in the cage during the proceedings wearing a nice button-up shirt and a shaved head. Sometimes he would look completely bored, but other times he would act out. He would yell at the audience, make sudden outbursts, and rattle the cage. Sometimes he would sing socialist movement anthems. Two separate times he stood up, pulled his pants down, and exposed himself to the court. With his penis out, he screamed out into the courtroom that he wasn't a homosexual. When he acted out, they would take him away, put him back in his cell, and continue without him. Many thought he was trying to act insane so they wouldn't convict him. They even brought in previous psychiatrists that had evaluated him. They said his behavior in the courtroom didn't match what they had seen before. His defense attorney kept arguing that the public had already seen him as guilty and that the system was rigged against him. Soon it was clear that even the judge didn't like Andre. Andre would bring up his horrific past or tell the court that the charges filed against him were false, but the judge would yell at him from his platform telling him to shut up and that Andre should stop pretending to be crazy. After this, the defense constantly argued that the judge was biased against Andre, and even the prosecutor agreed. At one point, Andre refused to answer any questions from the judge, the prosecutor, or his own attorney, and sat quietly in his cage and didn't say a word. In the end, his main defense was that the confessions were coerced by the interrogators, and that the evidence and psych evaluations were flawed. So Andre pled not guilty. On August 10th, the day of the final arguments, Andre began singing in his cage. He talked a bunch of nonsense and said that he was being radiated. They removed him from the court while Prosecutor Anatoly Zadaraujny gave his final arguments. In his last statements, the prosecutor drew a gruesome picture of Andre. He reminded the court of his sadistic murders in detail, and he asked the court to give Andre the death penalty. After he was done, they brought Andre back into the courtroom and gave him a final moment to speak for himself, but he didn't say a word. At the end of the day, the brother of one of the victims threw a heavy chunk of metal at Andre's cage, and it hit him right in the chest. When security tried to arrest the brother, other people in the courtroom shielded him from being arrested. But after the trial was over, the judge announced that September 15th would be the day they sentenced Andre. The jurors and the judge took time to review the evidence and decide, but it took nearly two months for them to finish. The formal sentencing was eventually set for October 14th. At that time, they found Andre guilty of 52 of the 53 murder charges, and they sentenced him to death for each charge. They also found him guilty on all five sexual assault charges from when he worked as a teacher in the 70s. In his final statements, the judge criticized the police and the prosecutor during the case that they had let Andre's murder spree last for over a decade. He called one of the lead investigators, Isa Kostovyov, negligent, because he had completely ignored Andre's name in a suspect list back in 1987. And the next day, the judge formally sentenced Andre to death plus 86 years. And when Andre heard this, he kicked the bench across his cage and began screaming. But when they formally asked him to make his final speech, he stayed quiet. At that point, they removed him from the iron cage and dragged him back to his cell, 
where he waited for his execution day. He eventually tried to appeal his conviction, but Russia's Supreme Court denied the appeal in 1993. But they did rule that there was not enough evidence for nine of his murder charges. On January 4th, his final appeal from President Boris Yeltsin was also rejected. On February 14, 1994, they took Andre into an empty soundproof room. With his arms handcuffed behind his back, they made him kneel on the ground. The executioner raised the gun to the back of Andre's head and shot once, just behind the right ear. Blood and brain matter scattered across the room as Andre's body slumped to the floor. They proceeded to bury him in an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery, and his family didn't have a funeral. And not much is known about what happened to his wife and children. To this day, Andre Chikatilo is known as one of the most infamous serial killers in the world. Killing over 50 people in a decade makes him one of the most excessive killers of all time. And many researchers wanted to keep him alive so they could study him. After his death, there was a rumor that Japanese scientists offered $1 million for Andre's brain. His case was so horrifying that he still studied to this day. Andre was a family man without a job. He was smart, had a degree in literature, and appeared to function in society. But he hid his urges incredibly well. Deep down, he was a disturbed and perverted killer, and one of the worst that Russia has ever seen. So that is the horrifying story of Andre Chikatilo. One of the biggest questions in this case, though, is Andre's brain damage that he suffered in the early part of his life. And I think I think this was one of the reasons why researchers wanted to study his brain is because they wanted to see if there's any sort of connection between, you know, the brain damage that he suffered from versus, you know, and how that may have connected to his urges and things like that. And I think that's a very interesting notion to consider because I, I think that in many of these serial killer cases, there's there is absolutely has to be a scientific connection between the brain and these urges. Cause obviously this is not something that's normal. This is kind of an anomaly that happens in people. And you know, this luckily this is a rare thing uh, that happens where people are, you know, they're sexually satisfied by violence and killing and things like that. And I really do wonder and, and believe that there probably is some sort of connection there from damage to a certain part of the brain because you know there's your brain consists of all these different parts to it and if certain parts are damaged or injured or suffer from a disease or something like that it can completely change the person it can and so i mean i'm talking like i'm a neuroscientist or a neurosurgeon but but it can i mean but just based on what i know and, and what you know about people that uh, you know, go in for brain surgery and something goes wrong in the brain and all of a sudden their life is drastically different, yeah. whether they're paralyzed or there's people who like just don't speak anymore after mm-hmm. or there's there's really crazy instances where people uh, fall on their head and then all of a sudden are like geniuses. Wow. Like there's yeah. uh, there's stories about people that all of a sudden have like their IQ, they're like mm-hmm. Albert Einstein level smart after suffering traumatic brain damage that's interesting and i think that clearly that shows that there is some sort of connection between you know the state of your brain and how you are as a human being Mm -hmm. and and you know the you know the person that you put forward to the world and i think i i think personally i think there is a good chance that the brain damage he suffered from coupled with i mean his mother was abusive. I mean, right. there, was a, there was a, it was bad. I don't think it was up. the main issue. I do think for Andre's case, it was a cocktail of things because lots of people could some, uh, you know, experience a similar brain damage and not turn into this monster that Andre turned into. Right. Because like you said, his upbringing definitely had contribution to how he's changed. He couldn't connect with his peers or his family. And Unfortunately, he experienced, you know, sexual performance issues that I feel like really made him depressed because he couldn't satisfy himself with his partner. So he'd struggled with his romantic relationships. So I think a a lot of that built up this depression, like rage inside, like wanting to get back at people because he's so angry with himself. And And that on top of an already damaged brain, I mean, it probably was like going crazy on on how to feel what to do because I found it really interesting at the end of his case that once he 
spoke with his psychiatrist and he felt like his psychiatrist could really connect with him on this personal level yeah. that he felt comfortable enough like hey i'm being heard i'm just going to tell yeah. him and confess exactly why i did these things and right. i think that was his way of of you know just getting it all off of his plate to somebody that actually seemed to care about him totally you know? yeah cuz a lot of people neglected him didn't pay him any attention yeah i mean he was called and, the maniac and yeah. this and that like yeah, I, I I think I think you are are making a correct assumption that there's a you know it's a, a cocktail of things, things. and yeah. as there often is in serial killer cases. But I I always wonder if there's like a root. You know, we talked about this kind of in a previous episode with John Bunting, and how you know was he born to kill? And I think I I, I really that's like one of the the biggest questions that I have when yeah, it comes to it serial is. killers is like is there something that is you know maybe we don't even fully understand yet that makes people predisposed to to finding satisfaction through killing like Mm -hmm. killing provides that satisfaction but obviously in andre's case there's lots of other things that sort of you know play into it clearly what do you think about the you know the fact that andre uh was able to kind of keep 10 steps ahead and and do you think that releasing the information about the killings and everything to the public hurt the the police's investigation into it since Andre was reading the newspapers. Was it better for the public to be aware or should they have kept that quiet? Uh, I mean, it's a tough question because you want to have the public aware that these things are going on so yeah, they, they can constantly look be looking yeah. over their shoulder and don't, after don't hang out at train and stations and stuff. Yeah. But I think that would provide any serial killer you know, more knowledge on what's been shown to the public and how they can manipulate that. And back in, again, back then, you know, the police don't have a lot to work with technology wise. And, you know, they're really kind of going off of like word of mouth yeah. tips and, you know, they don't even really know what to do with this biological evidence that they collected. They, they don't really have a way to tie all the, the pieces together to sort of figure out the bigger picture here. And so I, I think in this case, it, you know, it became more about, you know, since they weren't able to catch him, it became more about making the public aware that there's this monster on the loose and that you should, you know, here's what he's doing. Here's where bodies are found. So mm-hmm. keep an eye out versus just keep, I mean, if they just kept it hush, hush, maybe have caught him a little bit sooner, but honestly, probably not. I think that he probably would have killed more yeah. if, you know, if the public hadn't been aware of his presence. So I mean, it, it makes sense today why, I mean, most investigations are kept very, very quiet until, you know, the police are ready to announce, you know, everything, especially with serial killers. Like we saw with the Golden State Killer mm-hmm. uh, a year or two ago, we saw that finally come out and that's been in the works for, for a long, long time. So I think now, especially with serial killer investigations, they keep it very quiet Yeah, because A, I mean, they don't want to cause panic and B, you know, they, you know, it's a much they need every uh, advantage that they can mm-hmm. get. So to, you know, try to keep it as quiet as they can. I can't imagine the the pain that the family members of these victims have had to live with ever since, you know, finding out that they were victims of Andre and just what that was like. And, you know, obviously I always want to pay respect to them. And, you know, that part of the reason for sort of retelling these stories is, you know, to remember the victims and remember what, horrible things they had to go through and you know remember that this this kind of evil exists in the world and it has existed since the beginning of time pretty much but we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there let us know what your thoughts are on andre chikatilo do you think that he got the punishment that he deserved do you think that i mean there's potential that there was even more victims out there that you know were never never found or identified that's that's a real possibility with him But make sure you let us know in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube and Apple Podcasts as well as following us on Spotify. I really appreciate it. It only takes a moment. It really does help us out. Also, be sure to leave rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts if you wouldn't mind. We'd love seeing your guys' feedback on the show. We're always trying to make it better and improve it upon each week. But that is it for us today. We will see you guys next time. And until then, lights out, everybody.